Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. We live in intellectually mediocre times when commitment to true debate as a means of ascertaining truth and the understanding that reasonable people can have different opinions has been replaced by a desire among the culturally powerful to stifle heterodox thought and punish unapproved belief. My guest today refuses to yield to such intellectual straitjacketing. A true polymath, he advocates heterodox ideas and thought, ranging from questioning Darwinism to espousing the once self-evident truth that there is such a thing as human nature. David Berlinski received his Ph.D. in philosophy from Princeton University and was later a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University. He is currently a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Dr. Berlinski has authored works on systems analysis, differential topology, theoretical biology, analytic philosophy, and the philosophy of mathematics, as well as three novels. He has also taught philosophy, mathematics, and English at such universities as Stanford, Rutgers, the City University of New York, and the University de Paris. In addition, he has held research fellowships at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria and the Institut de Haute Etudes Scientifique, My French Stinks, in France. Recent articles by Dr. Berlinski have been featured in Commentary, Forbes, ASAP, and the Boston Review. Two of his articles on the origins of the mind and what brings a world into being have been anthologized in the Best American Science Writing of 2005. He is the author of numerous books, including a tour of Calculus, The Advent of Algorithm, Newton's Gift, A Short History of Mathematics, The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions, The King of Infinite Space, Euclid and His Elements, and his most recent, Human Nature, published in 2019. He is also the author of too many essays to count and the subject of innumerable interviews. Finally, as this conversation will make very clear, he is a hell of a lot smarter than I am. David, welcome to Humanize. Thank you very much, and thank you for that splendid introduction. I'd love to meet this guy, too. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> you know, I like uh, to let my uh, listeners uh, learn about my guests as human beings. You've had a very interesting story, including, I believe, that your parents not only escaped Nazi Germany, but occupied France. Tell us that story. Well, both of my parents were musicians, and I grew up in Leipzig in Germany. And uh, 
They had an excellent musical education. And in 1932, my father realized they had to get out of Germany. Their lives were in danger. He was very prophetic. This was 1932, remember? Yeah, that's before Hitler came to power. It was, just before Hitler came to power. And many German Jews said, oh, this will all blow over. And my father said, no, it's going to end in mass murder. 1932. Wow. So they, they emigrated to France, and they became students all over again. My father studied with Nadia Boulanger and Alfred Coteau. He was an accomplished pianist, a concert pianist, and so was my mother. And they loved, uh, loved France. And in 1938, my father again said, war is coming. And he responded by joining the Foreign Legion, because the Foreign Legion offered every one of its volunteers citizenship after five years of service. He participated in the battle for France in 1940, and unfortunately, the French army collapsed. So the promise of citizenship was null and void. It might be revivable today, I don't know. And uh, because my father knew very well that both he and my mother were on the Gestapo lists. They had to flee France, which was a nightmare in 1940. Um, my father fled from the Belgian border on foot to Marseille. And uh, he and my mother spent a year in Marseille assembling travel documents with the help of Varian Fry, whom Eleanor Roosevelt commissioned to help German Jewish intellectuals flee Europe. They managed to escape from France into Spain, and then from Spain into Portugal, where they, in 1941, caught virtually the last ship out of Europe, the last passenger ship out of Europe, arriving wow. first in Cuba and then in New York. It was an incredible accomplishment getting out alive. That is a story of human survival. It almost sounds like the movie Casablanca. It's much grimmer. <laughs> yeah. Because so many people did not make it out alive. Yeah, that's right. Marseille. Occupied France and Marseille. So when they, they reached New York, they had $10 between them. Wow. And that's how they began their American life. And I was born shortly thereafter. Boy, life would have been, you might not be here, obviously, if I they would, hadn't caught that boat. I would not have been. There's no question about it. Had my parents been captured by the Gestapo, their lives would have come to an end, and mine too. There's just no question about that. Yeah, just just stunning. Uh, you began your career in mathematics and molecular biology, uh, and you've also been involved in philosophy and so forth. Those are almost um, a dichotomous, right? I mean, the, but math is an objective discipline, meaning if a formula works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But philosophy is subjective. Do you? How do you meld those two? It's a good question, and it's not easy. I'm not sure I've been successful. When I was in, uh, in college, I, I went to Columbia College, I studied history. Uh, I had no interest, no real interest in mathematics. I had no real interest in philosophy. It was in graduate school in philosophy that I developed an interest, oddly enough, in mathematics. That was through taking Alonzo Church's graduate-level course in mathematical logic. I didn't understand a word, but I recognized a very powerful subject and a very attractive subject at the same time. And then when I got out to Stanford, I teamed up with a mathematician and we collaborated together for the three years that I was an assistant professor at Stanford. I have gone back to philosophy. It remains a, an aching kind of intellectual pursuit because no matter how I twist it and turn it, 
I never am quite satisfied either with the positions that I've reached or even more obviously with the positions that other people have reached. On the other hand, whenever I, I return to mathematics, I have a feeling this is an intrinsically powerful, worthwhile endeavor. And if only you stick to it, you will reach the kind of understanding that I seem never to have reached in philosophy. Well, how can, how can you uh, reach that kind of understanding in philosophy? I mean, the, the, those are philosophy by definition is not ever going to be final, but I assume that, and I'm not a mathematician, but I assume that at least in mathematics, when you find a formula that is solved, that's it, right? Well, to a certain extent, there is that that's it phenomenon in, in mathematics. That's, that's certainly true. And it, it is also true that many, many areas in philosophy are exactly as perennially problematic as you've, you've just suggested. On the other hand, I do think that there has been, since, say, 1940, 1950, a certain kind of appreciation of what it would take to solve certain kinds of problems in philosophy. And that's quite rewarding. It's quite interesting. At the same time, there is a recognition that when we turn to such problems as consciousness or free will, We've made no progress whatsoever since the Greeks. It's, ho it's a hopeless model. But the areas of philosophy, analytic philosophy, say, in which I think there has been a certain amount of clarification, still, to my mind, do not give me the kind of intellectual rewards I can get from mathematics. It's a, it's a different approach, a different attitude. Perhaps it's my own lack of philosophical imagination. I don't know. It's possible. I doubt that. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing as the philosophy of mathematics. What is that? Well, nobody really understands in a very deep way, first, how it is that human beings have acquired a massive amount of mathematical knowledge. And second, what it is that mathematics actually describes. I mean, you can begin at the very beginning. What on earth is a number? One, two, three. I mean, we, we know what numbers are intuitively and instinctively. We're born knowing the numbers, at least the natural numbers. But it's a quite different thing to ask, what is it that we're born knowing? Are these platonic objects existing in some metaphysical realm that we can only investigate through inference? Do we have direct insight into the numbers? Do the numbers exist in space and time? Was there a time before the time the number one existed? It doesn't seem like a very profitable question because it involves you immediately in the circularity um, of um, determining a time in which the numbers could not have existed. Well, how far back in the past was that, and how do you what what do you use to measure that? It doesn't. I'm not saying this can't be analyzed more successfully, but it does not seem a very successful strategy to talk about the numbers the way we would talk about eggs, the day of production of an egg. Well, the numbers don't seem to have dates of production, nor do they seem to expire. Um, on the other hand, just how, given our very limited cognitive apparatus, do we make contact with these apparently eternal objects that are just existing. You mean These, three is always three is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, it, it, it always is a temporal adverb or adjective. 
it's not that it's always as opposed to not being always. It exists in a realm in which temporal distinctions don't make a whole lot of sense. No matter how far back you want to go, it doesn't seem coherent to say, well, there were no numbers then. Yeah. Number one didn't exist. Nor does it seem coherent to say there's a possible world in which two plus two equals four was not yet true. Th yeah, that's that's interesting. On the other hand, zero didn't always, well, it always existed, you're saying, but we just didn't know it? Well, zero always existed. It has to exist for mathematical reasons. What was lacking was an adequate notation for zero. And that's typical throughout mathematics. For a very long time, we had no notation for the complex numbers either. As a matter of fact, there are whole civilizations which have never gone beyond one, two, three, four. The, fraction, the fractions remaining just out of sight with respect to their notational systems or their intellectual graphs. We're going to get into human nature and so forth a little later. This raises a question in my mind. Do animals have a sense of numbers? They seem to have a limited sense of numbers. There are experiments with crows, very clever birds, by the way, crows, ravens, even dogs, not so much cats, where there seems to be at least the distinction, an accessible distinction between one thing and another, some grasp of the number one. Um, the beginning of numbers was the beginning of things, Tyria Schott said in the 12th century, and he was right. Without some sense of identity and individuation, most of the higher mammals simply couldn't exist. They couldn't tell one thing apart from another. But it, uh, it does seem to be the case that None of the animals that have been carefully studied seems to have a real grasp of the natural numbers. The fundamental fact about the natural numbers, they just go on and on and on. There's no greatest natural number. Hmm. You can have a pooch that responds to one, two, and three, bring me three balls. And some very clever border collies, for example, will, will be able to execute a task like that. But ask the same pooch. Poochie, is there a greatest number? They'll just look up at you. It's not that he is unwilling, he is unable to answer the question because the cognitive apparatus of the dog does not encompass the distinction we make when we talk about the numbers. Namely, they're infinite. But that, that dog would know how many sheep he was supposed to hurt. It could be. He would have a sense of how many roughly. I don't know whether he would be able to count 279 sheep. Yeah. But he would know... A big, a big collection of sheep from a small collection. But yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Compared to things. You know, um, <laughs> I think you could do a whole show on this because uh, I've never thought about that before, but it really just opens up, you know, my eyes to how much um, I don't know and how much I haven't contemplated. It's really remarkable. Uh, I, I've always thought, at least in, the, let's say, in the last 20 years or so, that the most important human endeavor, uh, once we get past survival, is the search for truth. And as I, I always spent the last few days really looking into your career, things you've written and so forth, that really seems to have been your focus, too. It sounds, um, look, look, Wesley, if you want to say that, who am I to, to bicker in the background? Uh, if you want to add that I, I possess a stunning physical beauty, I'm not going to deny that either. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I know you didn't. 
But the truth is that it's just a little too grand. And I don't think it was as much a search for truth as, uh, first, uh, a real sense of curiosity, which I think most people have. I mean, why does this work in the way it does? And it was never a physical sense of curiosity. I was never for a moment interest why, interested in the fact that an object unsupported falls toward the center of the Earth. I was always perfectly satisfied with the explanation, well, that's where it belongs, the Aristotelian explanation. But mathematics and logic were completely different. Uh, I, I really found those immensely, immensely interesting. I still do. I still do. Um, I'm just spending a, a wonderful time uh, mastering the Borel-Cantelli level, which is a wonderful piece of probability, which for some reason or another I, I never really closely studied. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just magic to really get into it. All right, for you, but you have to tell me what that is. <laughs> it's, it's very simple. You know about them monkeys, right? They're sitting at a typewriter. Are they apt to compose Hamlet? Random. No. Yeah, no. Uh, given an unlimited amount of time, just lots and lots of time. And if the answer is yes, are they apt to do it again and again and again? Well, the Borel-Cantelli uh, Borel lemma tells you, yes, the monkeys will get Hamlet. I mean, you can wait a long time before the monkeys get anywhere. But sooner or later, by lucky accident, they'll get Hamlet. And if they get it once, they'll get it repeatedly, infinitely many times. It is not a particularly practical theorem. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating that in the 20th century we have developed analytical tools to investigate infinite sequences of events. I find it just a, a remarkable achievement of the human race, just a remarkable achievement. I was interested in this quote from you. You live near Notre Dame uh, Cathedral, and after it burned, you wrote, quote, the destructive destruction of Notre Dame evoked an almost universal sense of cultural horror that a structure of comparable grandeur lay completely beyond our collective competence, close quote. Well, that's really depressing, but is it really beyond our competence or is it beyond our interest? It's a good question. Um, I think it's beyond both. I think that even if we had architects of genius, like the men who built Notre Dame in the 12th century, or Schaffer, for that matter. Um, the collective will to create a structure like that, which is financial, moral, ethical, and religious, and of course, aesthetic, is just lacking. Uh, you go through France, where I live, uh, you look at any building constructed after 1945, say, and it's dreadful. And everyone recognizes it's dreadful, and no one really knows what to do about remedying the aesthetic defect which runs right like a scar through French life in such a way that we could again construct buildings that are at least rewarding to look at, let alone magnificent like Notre Dame, just rewarding to look at. Uh, it's, a, it's a very serious problem in contemporary life. I, I think lots of people have said the same thing, and I agree with them. Well, they agree with me. Take your pick. But uh, one of the striking features of modern technological society is the absence architecturally, or in terms of urban planning, of the genius that made possible certain constructions and certain urban panoramas in the 12th, 13th, right up to the 19th century. That seems to have disappeared. And I've spoken with lots of people, including good architects, 
ask them the question, how is it that we cannot build as well as even bad builders in the 19th century, let alone magnificent architects of the 16th century Italian Renaissance, or the high Gothic architects? And no one has an answer that is completely satisfying to my it, way of thinking. It has to be a cultural issue, because if you take a look, just for example, in Rome, at, I guess it's the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier uh, created by uh, uh, Mussolini. It's a brutal building, and it's right next to the uh, Forum where you have Fatch. You know, the ruins are actually far more beautiful than uh, of ancient Rome than that, that white uh, catastrophe. So maybe it has to do with culture. It's true throughout Europe. You'll, you'll see a brutal, stupid, ignominious building, and within the same panorama, something exquisite from one or two or eight centuries ago. Italian villages, French and Italian villages, which are just adorable, charming. You want to live there. You want to walk the streets. Human in its proportion. Not extravagant in the architecture, but absolutely captivating and inviting. And you look at a modern French suburb, it's just hideous. Yes. And the same is true here in the United States. I think. I'm afraid so. I mean, you look at the strip malls. <laughs> it, just, it really is uh, depressing. Yeah, I agree completely. But what I lack, and I wish I had, was someone to tell me, very interesting, Dave, you put your finger on something, you haven't answered the question, why has this happened? But here is the answer. I don't have that. Yeah, I, I don't have it either. Are you, are you working on that issue and that thought? No, not really. First of all, I don't know enough about it architecture to be authoritative in speaking. All I can do is record my impressions and the impressions of everybody around me. Nobody really disagrees, for example, yeah. with the proposition that Paris is being made uglier, that the, the race to obliterate the skyline with skyscrapers is proceeding apace. The 15th of Hondi's most full, filled with skyscrapers. There are two horrible monstrosities, excuse me, almost in the center of Paris. The Tour Montparnasse is one, and the tower at the University of Paris in Jussieu is another. I taught there. I know exactly how ugly the building is. Um, but beyond that, the superficial observation and the uh, indignation that it provokes are as far as anyone can get. Look, I was, I, I'm involved with some, you know, one of these uh, good-thinking organizations to preserve Paris, preserve the architectural integrity of Paris, and uh, we get nowhere. Let's move to uh, your critiques of science, uh, contemporarily uh, performed. You write often about the corruption of science as becoming ideological, which I, I happen to agree with that. I think that's the problem, and that's why people are losing trust in science. But in, in the book Human Nature, you write um, that the 21st century is secular and scientific, and then you say, quote, if I sometimes write to deplore the faith, it is because I am among the faithful, close quote. I found that very striking. I mean, you, you've been quite um, pointed in your criticism of uh, how science has become ideological or even a religion, and yet you say you also are uh, of that flock, if you will. That, that doesn't make um, quite some sense to me. Well, take it as a confession. You know, if a man is trapped in an avalanche, hurtling downhill, he doesn't have access to a position outside the avalanche by which he can describe it properly. 
it always has to be mittendrin, as the Germans say, from the middle. I, I do think it's important to recognize certain overwhelming facts about contemporary orthodoxies, namely that they are immensely powerful, not dismissible. I'm talking about the orthodoxy that assigns to theoretical physics the grandeur of providing the sole explanation for the physical world. It is not a form of arrogance or foolishness when physicists make that claim, nor is it a form of self-delusion because theoretical physics is an incredibly powerful discipline, second only to mathematics, which is the richest body of thought the human race has ever accomplished. So uh, when I say I'm of the faith or in the middle, I don't have a position beyond, say, a man on a ledge could watch a, an avalanche descending. I don't have that ledge. I find myself in the middle and constantly uh, reacting to circumstances without a superior position of judgment. Could you say, it seems to me, as you were just talking, uh, Martin Luther popped into my head that Martin Luther was a, and of course that had to do with Catholicism and religious faith, but he was of that faith, but he continually found problems with that faith, so he was trying to help. I think that's dead right. That's dead right. That perhaps, perhaps Martin Luther is too extravagant a comparison, but that idea of being within a system of thought and criticizing at the same time. You know, Quine had a, a, a very lovely metaphor. He compared it to being um, in a lifeboat and repairing the lifeboat as you depended on the lifeboat for survival. Deep down, we're all within the folds of uh, an immensely powerful orthodoxy. Uh, my mentor, I don't know if you know this, uh, I was, um, I've written four books with Ralph Nader. And um, I sat at uh, Ralph Nader's knee, uh, figuratively speaking, and he once said something to me that I think is, is equivalent. He said, we're all taught to think corporate. In other words, even though we, even Ralph, who, of course, uh, invades against corporations, big corporations all the time, even he, is, it's like the fish is in the water. You, you, it is just part of our, our, our environment, and we all are part of it. I think that's true. It's, 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 um, it's not only a question of environment, it is simply not possible in the 21st century to say, well, I don't believe in physics. It's not yeah. possible to say that. It's not possible to say, well, I don't believe in molecular biology. Of course, you'll always find a lunatic who says that. But we're talking about responsible intellectual engagement of the kind we'd like to think we ourselves are undertaking. It's not possible to disengage from the orthodoxies of physics or mathematics. No one who claims to have a superior system of real analysis, who doesn't know any mathematics, really has anything of the sort. So it's enveloping. And, and I think that it is the better part of wisdom to recognize the force of the scientific revolution, which, in, to my way of thinking, is the most important revolution that's ever taken place, far it, more important than the French or Russian revolutions. Is the um, faith, quote-unquote, that you're uh, criticizing scientism? In other so, words, people, and I've read, you've written about this, people trying to 
uh, discern, uh, say that, you know, what they, the discoveries of science can teach us things like right and wrong and, and how we're supposed to live and so forth? Yeah, I think if, if, if that is what scientism means, of course, I reject it. But I think almost everyone does. Not even the greatest of the great physicists are going to tell you, study quantum mechanics and you'll learn the difference between right and wrong. Um, the only people like Sam Harris think there is a, a continuous scheme between what the sciences establish and what the serious problems of life are. I would never say the sciences address the serious problems of life. That's something quite different. The sciences are, of course, a human endeavor. They have their scope, but also their limitations. There's no question about that. But talking about the physical world, we have no choice but to accept the vocabulary and the ideas of modern theoretical physics. Talking about mathematics, we have no choice but to accept a magnificent tradition of accumulated wisdom. You know, when people are saying things like, well, listen to the science or, um, you know, the scientific consensus says such and such, that's actually anti-science to me. You know, listen to the science is always a parochial, a parochial appeal. Somebody is out to get something by um, expressing the view that we ought to listen to the science. I mean, science is not a listenable event. Science yeah. is a body of theories. Uh, on, on some very difficult practical questions, unfortunately, because these questions are very far from the center of the sciences, global warming, for example, COVID-19 is another example, vaccine effectiveness is a third example, the sciences do not invariably speak with a unified voice. But we have to accept that too. But you see the people who are in power trying to pretend that it does. Yeah, well, you know. And, and it's a form, it seems to me, it's a form of uh, trying to establish a technocracy. It's about political power many times, not about, quote, what is, is and what isn't. I think you may well be right. I mean, it's a very useful cudgel, isn't it? Uh, yes. I want to shut someone up. I'll just say, well, science is against you. There's very little you can do by way of response. It is notable, though, that the people who directly appeal to science as a source of authority generally know very little about the sciences they're appealing to. <laughs> that's, that's very true. <laughs> I want to read something else you wrote. Um, you talk about in, in uh, uh, human nature that there is a um, universal civilization that we're developing. And here's what you wrote. The universal civilization requires an elaborate bureaucracy and a rational legal system enforcing the law of contracts. It requires a scientific elite. It requires science as a source of awe, and it requires relatively free markets. A doggish form of secular humanism prevails throughout. These are ideas, all of them, that invite a certain cynical asperity. Whatever else it may be, the universal civilization is emotionally and aesthetically repellent, close quote. That's a powerful statement. What is the universal civilization? Why uh, has it developed? And then I have a question for you about um, whether that would apply universally. The idea of universal civilization, those words I took from V.S. Uh, Naipaul, who took them from the Yale historian, it is the uh, dawning sense or it represents the dawning sense that in order to achieve a certain kind of society, say a society that has escaped the Malthusian trap, 
where birth rates collapse directly after food supplies give out. Society of a certain, certain degree of physical comfort, like the United States, like Western Europe, um, it is necessary to um, put your faith really in one system, because competitive systems have proven themselves incapable of achieving these ends. And I've gone through a list of things that are part of the, the universal civilization. And I think it's correct to talk in these terms because every civilization that's achieved a certain degree of technical sophistication has followed the same basic rules. We know from the 20th century that a communist system, for example, and this is something that was only discovered historically, it's not predicted in advance, seems incapable of achieving that degree of, uh, of uh, political competence, that degree of, of wealth. Uh, a system without any kind of legal structure equally seems incapable of, of producing a civilization of that degree of wealth, ease, and comfort. And you can go through the list. A civilization without science cannot master the technological basics without a scientific background. So these are all necessary components of the universal civilization, and there really does seem to be only one universal civilization. Just as human beings are the only species on the planet with the properties they have, for example, language or thought. So a civilization in this sense, not the Roman sense, not the Greek sense, not the Chinese sense, but the modern sense of the civilization that is productively wealthy at a certain level of ease and comfort and technological sophistication and medical capabilities, that's achievable only in terms of one form of organization. I think that's probably true. I, I don't have proof, goodness knows. But I think it's, it's probably true. It, it, it also seems to me to have the seeds of its own destruction because when we get that successful, we cease to be willing to accept risk and peril. Now, I'm not sure risk and peril are the, the, the crucial issues. There's plenty of risk in the modern world. There's plenty of peril. Um, I think the repellent aspect of modern civilization, it's in part aesthetic, it's in part religious, it's in part social, uh, is much more compelling as animadversions. Because along with the universal civilization goes a certain, I think, well-merited indifference to age-old structures of human life with certain kinds of painful commitments that have to be made. For example, marriage and the family. Uh, universal civilizations tend overwhelmingly to be secular, and secular civilizations tend to be corrosive of all social bonds. And Marx had uh, a, a very pregnant aphorism, everything, uh, everything sacred is profaned. Are you saying that the things that create the universal civilization, that actually help it become successful, that once it attains that level of um, acceptance, that it actually begins to uh, corrupt itself and disintegrate because it, it does away with some of the things that are required to, to go there? Absolutely. That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. It's a corrosive, self-abnegating process. And I think we're in that that uh, 
part of the cycle right now. Um, and, and I think that also may be part of the reason why Notre Dame could never be uh, built today. But also part of the reason that the fire of Notre Dame evoked such cultural horror. Yes, yes. Everybody recognized you know, something irreplaceable is being destroyed in front of our eyes. It was easy to see. That's why the cultural horror. The yeah. fact that family, human family is being destroyed in front of our eyes. Wherever secular regimes hold sway, it's much more difficult to see. Because it takes more time. It takes more time, and you have to look carefully at statistics. And, and more people are, are given a stake in that, uh, for example, promiscuity and so forth, and they, they come to believe that, hey, there's something in this for me when it's actually destroying them. Absolutely. We see that as, a, as a, an ongoing process, but we only see it dimly. Uh, nobody is brought face to face with other parts of the fire consuming civilization the way they were brought face to face with the fire of Notre Dame. The, the one country I think that challenges uh, part of what you were saying is China today. Uh, China has moved away from pure communism. It's actually closer to fascism, I think, because it's allowed a free market. Uh, and that has raised standard of living. Certainly, relatively speaking, the Chinese people uh, are better off than they were under Mao, no question about it. Um, but it has not led to any political freedom there. In fact, quite the contrary, it has led to increased autocracy. And that kind of um, approach, the technocracy, the autocracy that China, uh, pure evil, I mean, we don't have time to get into it today, but the genocide of the Uyghurs, for example, um, there is, it seems to me that some in the West are actually looking at that model, not the genocide part, but the, the kind of uh, top-down uh, uh, ruling part and saying, hey, that actually would work better. I mean, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, uh, actually complimented China because their ability to fight global warming was superior because they didn't have to deal with that messy democracy stuff. And China does not have the rule of law. I think, I think those points are right. It is certainly no part of the brief I wanted to present to the court that the universal civilization necessarily is one that's democratic, or even necessarily is one with a great deal of freedom. Uh, the example of China, unfortunately, suggests that, you, yes, you can build a modern global civilization, uh, very satisfying or, or satisfactory to its inhabitants, unless you're unfortunate being among the Uyghurs, for example, or any other persecuted minority, without the apparatus of a modern democratic state. It's, it's possible. Universal civilization is, um, I, I think, far more an administrative idea than it is a liberal democratic idea. It's a technocracy idea. It's, it's some, in some sense, I think that's right. Ruled by experts, and then it's a bu and then it's bureaucratic because you end up with a, a whole uh, most people being in a dependency circumstance. Then you you have to hire the bureaucrats to create the means of taking care of the people who are so dependent, and and uh, it really does lead to um, I think a uh, a loss of human equality. It helps. It helps erode that sense. But, but bear in mind, all of these ideas, it seems to me, are, are um, quite speculative. I would, never, I would never begin to suggest a, a degree of confidence that I have in these ideas beyond what I've suggested already. 
that it, it does seem to me that there's a convergence on a certain administrative solution to an age-old problem. And I, I wouldn't, uh, I certainly don't commend the universal civilization. Right. I, I'm not willing to live beyond it either. I'm not going to go out in the woods and uh, yeah, go eat berries and hunt, uh, hunt for animals or fish in the streams. That, that's abhorrent to me. What I what I'm getting from you is a uh, I think it's important for anyone who wants to um, think deeply about uh, ultimate issues. There's a sense of humility um, that you express I, that I find uh, quite quite appropriate in the sense that you're not saying I have the answers. You're saying I have the questions. I, 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 I would commend my outstanding sense of humility. Yes. <laughs> but that's exactly right. I, I think I'm in the position that deep down we're all in the same position. We're, we're busy asking a lot of questions. The questions are good. The questions are bad. But sometimes they're also important. They're important about with respect to the way we live. And I think uh, there are precious few answers available. You know, there's nothing, nothing in, in human nature or human society suggests that the level of sophistication we reach in mathematics or theoretical physics is accessible to us when we discuss politics, ethics, intellectual life generally, history. These are completely different subjects, and we shouldn't say that until we've reached that level of assuredness that we have in talking about the standard model of particle physics, we cannot ask questions about, say, the history of the 20th century. That's just foolishness. We, we have to ask those questions. You've described yourself as a secular Jew, um, but at the same time, you've, you've decried atheism as using science to gain a legitimacy it does not deserve. Are you saying that we should all be agnostic? You mean follow my lead? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, encouraging, I'm encouraging that, sure. Um, look, I have, I have absolutely no problem with the religious experience, and I know and I have known many people deeply moved by their religious experience. I have nothing to say about that. I do find myself deeply suspicious about anyone who affirms as a matter of belief that, for example, there is no God. He includes that in his belief, because so long as he includes that in his belief, it's reasonable to ask why. Every time you say, I believe such and such, it's perfectly reasonable to say, why do you believe that? Just as if someone claims to know something, it's reasonable to say, how do you know that? How and why are two questions appropriate to our cognitive attitudes? Uh, inevitably, though, when you discuss matters with an atheist, and I have from time to time had a public debate uh, with Christopher Hitchens. What they mean is not, I believe that God does not exist. What they mean is, a belief in God's existence or inexistence is not among my beliefs. I back off from that. Just as I don't have a particular belief with respect to the first person who managed to scale Annapurna in winter. I don't have a belief that he did. I don't have a belief that he didn't. I just don't include that among my beliefs. Those are quite different epistemic attitudes. I believe that God does not exist makes a claim. I'm entitled to say, well, why? And, and if I say I believe God does exist, you, you would... Thing. 
same but thing. I don't believe God exists. It's not among my beliefs. Well, that's just neutral as far as I can see. That's an agnostic position. I have nothing to say to that because it's probably what most of us who are not living a religious life, as I'm not, I wouldn't be sitting here in Paris if I were. Um, most of us who are not living a religious life have the attitude that God exists, God does not exist. Those are propositions which I could believe or disbelieve, but I don't happen to include them in my belief set. And yet, uh, you used to, when Notre Dame was open, uh, go there regularly to light a candle for a deceased friend. Yep. So <laughs> that was a religious practice. I'm large. I can I comprise multitudes. What can I say? <laughs> My friend was, was the mathematician Marco Schutzenberger, and uh, at his death, he said he wants to come back as a gargoyle. <laughs> oh, I love those gargoyles. Yeah, I know the dog. And uh, I mean, the church is closed now, but whenever I pass, you know, I, I live right around the corner. I would go in, and you can buy a little candle, and just put it on some sort of oil or something. Um, I can't say. I believe Marco was watching or anything like that, but it might made me feel good. And like everybody else, I do a lot of things because it makes me feel good. It connect it kept you at least connected with your dead friend. Yeah, it did. And and, and that's a really human thing to do. When Notre Dame opens again, I'll do it again. I would say, uh, except you're Jewish, go when you walk by, uh, give your cross yourself, you know. <laughs> carrying matters. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I suspect you're a bit of an iconoclast, and I wonder if you were living in a different era, say the Middle Ages, whether you would be similarly, similarly critical of religious analysis of reality. Tough to say. You know, the figure I admire most in the 11th, early 12th century is Abelard. Um, Abelard did not quite have the complete Aristotelian canon at its fingertips. It hadn't been translated yet. A hundred years later, Thomas Aquinas would have the whole thing. But he had a, a certain portion of Aristotelian logic, and he was enormously gifted, a natural-born logician. And uh, he, he, he loved to go uh, and hear other people lecture, and inevitably he found them irritating pompous, and he made a specialty of asking devastating questions from the lecture hall. Questions that he knew the lecturers, like William of Champeaux, for example, was one of them. Um, Ronsard was another one. They just simply could, uh, not Ronsard, uh, Rosalind was another one. Ronsard's a French poet. He couldn't answer. Uh, and in fact, the most um, notable aspect of Abelard's life took place right outside my window. And he was walking down the street, his head full of liturgical arguments. He wrote a big book called Sick and No, Yes and No, disputing, disputing, challenging church dogma, and offering variants of church dogma at the same time, making a spectacle of himself. And then he met Eloise, a beautiful young girl, 16, walking down the street. They carried on torrid affair in the building right around the corner from me, still with a big plaque memorializing their affair. And it all came to grief. It all came to grief. Uh, both their lives were ruined. Eloise re retired to a convent, spent 40 years in a convent. And um, Abelard fell into dispute with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and he died miserable, broken, completely broken. 
Um, so I, I don't know whether the life of an iconoclast in the Middle Ages really has all that much to commend it. But I would add one thing. It could get you burned at the stake. <laughs> what Abelard and Eloise suffered was worse. Yeah. Lifelong. It's called chagrin d'amour, the sadness of love. Because they parted when they were only 22 or 23, and they parted for life. And it, even at the end of her life, Eloise said, even if I'm damned to hell, nothing will compel me to give up the love I had for Abelard. And... Uh, she died, she died a broken woman. He died a broken man. Uh, and that's very certain, human, too, in the sense of broken heart is a human condition. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're a, you're a pretty harsh critic of Darwinism. and we'll Talk a little bit about that. Let's define the term. A lot of people think Darwinism is just natural selection, but it isn't. How do you define Darwinism? Well, Darwinism really is uh, the thesis when it comes to biological change. What a lucky break occurred. Because it is random all the way down. Mutations, kind of the instrument for, for Darwinian evolution, are random, so the theory holds. And uh, although natural selection, by definition, is not random, it favors those with advantageous variations, the fact is the environments change randomly. So what's advantageous to the elephant in one environment, say the veld in, in Africa, would be disadvantageous to another environment if an elephant were forced to live in a high-rise in Manhattan. <laughs> that trunk would certainly not fit in the elevator. Um, so we have randomness all the way down, and the product of two random variables is again a random variable. And uh, just from an intuitive point of view, and Darwinism is an intuitive point of view, it's not a well-developed theory, as many outstanding theoretical biologists acknowledge. Just from an intuitive point of view, it doesn't seem adequate to the facts. Uh, how can a random... And this is a question that lots of people have been asking. How can a purely random process generate the incredible, the marvelous, sophisticated complexity of organic life? It's a good question. It hasn't been answered. Yeah, and, and the people who ask it, uh, if they identify as, as a certain, um, for example, proponents of intelligent design, are, are attacked in a way that I think is unscientific because – if you're really looking for what is, you should welcome heterodox theories, not try to challenge them or suppress them. But we have to be, to a certain extent, tolerant. The people who are attacking intelligent design are, are like guests at a banquet uh, who announce they're on a severe diet, won't touch a thing, but may be seen gobbling from the table five minutes later. And all the ideas have entered into into uh, biological discourse. For example, the idea of irreducible complexity, which is Mike Behe's idea. But certain structures are by definition inaccessible to a Darwinian mechanism because all the parts have to fit together. And if one is taken away, uh, the structure will collapse. So no gradual or continuous process is adequate to the construction of the whole. That's a very powerful idea. And Mike Behe is one of the most interesting theoretical bi biologists of the last century. And biologists, all of them who are writing about this subject, understand this is a real challenge. They're just unwilling to give credit where credit is due, but again. Why, why do you think that is? Probably for the same reason I wouldn't give credit where credit is due, a desire to hog the glory. And it has to be said, a fear of where those arguments could lead. 
And, and that's pretty clear. That That's, I think, the key there, the fear of where it will lead. I think there's a certain hubris to this. Now, this is not the issues that I engage. I don't engage the intelligent design issue. I engage human exceptionalism, which we'll get to. Uh, but I think that uh, if intelligent design is true, that means materialism is false. And there's a certain uh, power for believers in materialism, that is that they are the captain of their own ship. And if, uh, if, if there's... I said, I said, I think that's true, Wesley, but I think the more important point is everyone at the top of the scientific pyramid, the really powerful intellects, uh, almost unconsciously are prepared to say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If it ain't coming from my mouth, it's not true. What they're apprehensive about, again, it's perfectly understandable, is that science itself as a mode of inquiry is going to make that kind of asseveration untenable. Yeah. There are other gods beside you. You don't have the last word. And those other gods are not simply gods of chance. They have a much more personal and direct uh, and more compelling influence on human life. That is something that I think uh, almost every scientist instinctively rejects. I, I'm not trying to label you, but you you approach life from a secular perspective, a, a, a analytical perspective, and yet you are a believer or you accept the intelligent design hypothesis. Steve Meyer believes that that intelligent designer is God, not necessarily the Christian God. I, I interviewed him uh, a bit ago. Not necessarily the Christian God. He said you can't prove that, but he believes that the the um, evidence does suggest God as as we would understand God. That is a metaphysical uh, driver and creator of all that is. Is that a, a fair description? I think it is fair, and I think Steve Meyer deserves enormous credit for having the courage to go out and make the case explicitly. And it's perfectly clear to me why the scientific community doesn't want to follow his lead. And why they've tried to actually suppress this view and, and call it creationism, which they consider a denigration. But it's, a, it's false because the scientific method requires heterodox challenges. And the Darwinian uh, uh, community seems to be saying, we don't want no challenges. Well, Wesley, look, um, we're among friends. Is there anything wrong with creationism as a possibility? No, in the, in the sense that uh, um, I don't think you can prove scientifically. When, when they say creationism, I think they're referring to the Adam and Eve story, um, which, of course, cannot be demonstrated scientifically. I think they're trying to say that it's a myth as opposed to what you're saying is that it's the actually the uh, best explanation we can come up with at this time. I think the inference to the best explanation, although it's never been clarified logically to my satisfaction, is in use all the time. And then when, when Steve Meyer is arguing, he's arguing with respect to an inference to the best explanation. And his conclusion, if you look at the facts of astrophysics, if you look at the facts of molecular biology, if you look at lots of different facts, they're all pointing like a series of converging arrows to one hypothesis. 
That's perfectly reasonable. The question whether I accept it is a quite different question. From your perspective, I would assume the um, argument that actually provides the best explanation as we can understand it at this time is the one that we should be pursuing or that we should accept. Yeah, I guess so. Look, I, I don't have a vested interest in in explaining things. I, I'm really a second story man. You know, on the first story, they're busy explaining things. On the second story, they're kind of looking down and criticizing. I'm not. I'm, I'm not on the second story. You can look down and say, "Oh, that you did that wrong. You did that right. You did that wrong," but I don't have to do those things. Yeah, I'm one of those guys too. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd like this interview. You know, it's like that, the constant um, abjuration uh, is supposed to punch up instead of punching down. Well, I don't see any reason to do that. I vastly prefer punching down because if you punch up, somebody might punch back. <laughs> I, I find that intensely disagreeable. I don't like criticism at all. But, but the pointed issue is not to ask too much of a community by too much what they cannot spontaneously provide instead nibble at the edges until the plausibility of a certain position becomes evident and i think it's exactly what steve meyer has done i think it's exactly what the guys at the discovery institute have done in a very sophisticated way i think um, keep asking why are we ruling out of court certain kinds of inferences that we would otherwise be prepared to make. Inferences to some sort of controlling intellectual force responsible for the complexity we see. That's not a scientific theory. It's not a scientific theory by any means. If you compare it with general relativity, you see enormous difference. We don't have controlling equations. We don't have fundamental insights into the structure of what might be involved if an intelligence is controlling the generation of complexity? That's all part of the, the religious metaphysical tradition. It's, it's not bad because of that. It's none the worse for wear, but it shouldn't confuse that with a, a true scientific theory. And there, there are different ways for human beings to know things, right? I mean, there's a noetic way of knowing things. There's a scientific way of knowing things. Metaphysical, uh, religious uh, uh, experiences, as you mentioned before? Oh, for sure. A metaphysics is a metaphysics. Uh, I, I think that that's probably true. The deepest questions are metaphysical. But uh, again, to, to insist that there are um, different ways of knowing, yes, of course that's true. Of course there are different ways of knowing. What I know from experience is quite different from what I can generate from theory. But, but I think there's, there's also a certain amount of wisdom in, in respecting the kind of institutional structures in which we find ourselves, not asking institutions to do more than they're capable of doing. Yeah. I, I would be flabbergasted if the community of theoretical physics were to stop on a dime and say, hey, we never thought of that. That is the hypothesis that there's a controlling intellectual, all-powerful agency behind the world. Of course, the great physicists have all thought of that. But for professional, personal, intellectual, psychological reasons, they simply, as an institution, are unwilling to commit themselves to that. Also, the uh, philosophy of science, which says everything has to have a naturalistic explanation, I think sometimes makes it so that uh, what might be actually true is missed. Well, you know, when you come, 
you come across declarations, everything must have a naturalistic explanation. Uh, there's a self-referential fallacy because what you've just said obviously doesn't have a naturalistic explanation. It's up for grabs. So it's, it's a little like um, the verifiability principle of the 1930s and the 1940s. It's a little like Christopher Hitchens' declaration which cannot be supported with evidence, can be rejected without evidence. That proposition itself is neither supported by evidence, and it's certainly easy to reject it. Um, that's a great, uh, a great challenge for almost all of 20th, thought, 20th century thought to avoid self-referential fallacies. For example, beyond mathematics and the sciences, nothing is meaningful. It's the verifiability principle immediately falls victim to the self-referential fallacy. It itself is neither mathematics, nor mathematical, nor scientific. But that, that is, um, it, it runs like a, an undiagnosed, unseen scar throughout 20th century philosophical thought. Wow, and that's a, a terribly powerful argument. Very evocative way to put that. Let me, let me give you another quote you've written. Um, you said that the Holocaust was a crime against humanity because it was a crime against human nature. What did you mean by that? That's a, that's a really interesting thought. I don't think we are have yet reached the historical perspective where we can come to understand the Holocaust. In, in fact, almost everything about it is still mysterious. But I think at Nuremberg, the justices very valiantly tried to, uh, to put together some part of wisdom to account for the fact that these events took place between 1939 and 1945. And the charge, the gravamen of the charge, crime against humanity, really means there is something intrinsic. By intrinsic, I mean necessary to human nature that finds the Holocaust repugnant, morally repugnant, not simply as a crime, but as an idea. And I think that is true. I think the Holocaust is repugnant because it outrages something necessary in human nature cannot be changed, that sense of repugnance. I, I wonder about that, because you think about, uh, you know, let's say, biblical stories uh, where entire civilizations were wiped out and, and was not deemed repugnant. It was deemed doing the work of God. Yeah, I mean, the Bible is full of horrors. Uh, there's no question about that, but there is something, and this goes back to the remark uh, I intended just a few minutes ago, something unfathomable and inscrutable about the Holocaust that goes quite beyond biblical atrocities. When you actually actually look at uh, the Holocaust, it's crystal clear that what they had planned for the Jews was the first step. The second step was not killing all the Jews in Europe, it was killing all the Jews in the face of the earth. But the Jews were just the first step in a program of nihilistic recklessness in which one after the other, inferior peoples would either be reduced to slavery or eliminated from the face of the earth. They had exactly that plan for the Russians, for example. One reason the Russians fought them so furiously. Uh, in the end, it is clear, and there's some very interesting commentators who survived the Holocaust in concentration camps. I would commend Eugen Kagan, Kagan especially. He wrote a book called The SS State. K-A-G-A-N, I think is the spelling of his second name. 
where he said, look, in the end, what they envisaged was a society of the SS and no one else. And even if they could have achieved that, they would have been at the beginning of a process of devouring themselves. It yeah, you would have ended up with one person. <laughs> uh, it was all consuming. Yeah. The desire to kill. And, and that's I, what outrages human nature. I think you I think you've hit your finger on something I'd never considered before because the Holocaust does seem uniquely evil even beyond uh, the evil of American slavery even beyond the evil that Stalin invoked even though Stalin killed more people I agree with you Wesley I mean Stalin was obviously a, a monster in his own right but as everyone who's written about the Holocaust has admitted there was something unfathomable about the ambition behind the, the Holocaust. It was put to an end by the Red Army. That, that, that much we can say. But the system of desires behind it was an outrage to human nature, perhaps for the simple reason it was an outrage to life itself. Yeah, I think it was anti-life itself. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, people often say, uh, well, if you could go back and kill baby Hitler, would you? And my answer is always no, I would never go kill baby Hitler, but I would urge that art uh, school to admit him so that he would. Right away, oh man, would I write a letter of recommendation? Yeah, that could have made the difference in the world. I mean, uh, I think that was the for some reason, for some, that was a key point in human history when that art institute rejected his application. And, and that, again, is it, it's just baffling that history should work in that way. It's like looking at the history of the, the First World War and uh, noticing the accumulation of small errors that led to this enormous explosion. Yes, which it, we're still suffering the consequences of. It hasn't ended. The 20th century hasn't come to an end. Uh, we're we're beginning to run out of time, and I haven't even gotten to at least a third of what I wanted to talk to you about, which is uh, what I expected. Uh, I, I want to um, ask you about why there are so many subversive attacks on human exceptionalism. And, and the two that I'm thinking about most acutely, I mean, you've written against transhumanism, which I think is an issue, but I find even more disturbing the animal rights movement and the nature rights movement. Are you familiar with the nature rights movement? I have to confess I'm not. Ah. Nature rights um, is a, a movement, a new uh, radical environmental movement that says we cannot just protect nature by having proper laws and, you know, um, codes required and and so forth, but that nature itself should have the right to exist and flourish in evolution, and that every human being who believes that nature's, quote, rights are being violated has a right to bring a lawsuit to protect those rights. It basically creates nature on an equivalent plane as human beings. At least four rivers have already been declared uh, rights-bearing uh, quasi-persons. That, that can actually have rights that, that, not just human duties, but rights. Two glaciers have been declared uh, rights-bearing entities. So it's not just, uh, there's a, a attempt in Florida now, and, and actually in Orange County um, in Florida, they passed a law giving rights to water. Florida responded by saying only human beings can have rights. Now there's a constitutional amendment being pursued in Florida to give all of the water in, in Florida the right to flow, the right to uh, unimpeded, and this kind of thing. 
And I think it's incredibly detrimental because it basically is is denigrating the very concept of rights. If everything has rights, in a sense, nothing has rights because uh, rights become uh, fungible. And it's also like uh, the wild currency during currency during Weimar and a wild inflation. If everything has rights, nothing has rights, and the whole concept withers. Having heard these claims for the very first time, they strike me as, as some sort of bizarre mixture of unfathomable stupidity and reckless frivolity. I mean, I'm sure I haven't, I haven't gauged, I, I, I cannot yet appreciate what's involved in saying that the water in my toilet bowl has an intrinsic right to be flushed. <laughs> I, I will... I will send you some of my articles on nature rights because the frustration I've been having is getting people to take it seriously because it is so idiotic. But the problem is we live in idiotic times, and there are convince me of that. And uh, and and it and it's not just something that could happen; it is something that is happening. Uh, Just as an example, uh, Santa Monica has declared the rights of nature. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. I know Santa Monica like the back of my hand. There's no nature left in Santa Monica. I know. So, so I, what are they doing? It's a declaration of ideology that human beings are just another animal in the forest. And the idea behind that... That's a dangerous idea. Yes. That, that second part is a dangerous... The first part about... I forgot what you called it. Nature... Nature rights. Nature rights. That's just imbecilic. But the idea that human beings are just another animal is a, a pernicious doctrine. It's a degrading doctrine, and it's not true. So why isn't it true? Why isn't it true? Because human beings are in possession of a whole suite of species-specific properties that clearly distinguish them from all other animals. You don't have to go to the extent of saying that every human being contains within, as Catholic doctrine would urge, an image of God. You don't have to go to that extent and just look at the intellectual equipment of human being compared to any other species. Um, Noam Chomsky made a very, a very clever point about this. He said the distance um, between human beings and their nearest simian ancestors is the difference in the properties they possess is much greater than the difference between the great apes and the flowering plants. That's interesting. Geological time. The difference between us and our simian ancestors is still greater. There's no other species that behaves, that reacts, that builds, that constructs, that lives the way human beings do. It's absolutely clear. Anyone who suggests that, well, we're one with the ants and the brontosaurus simply doesn't doesn't have the capacity to look like in the face. It's not like that. Yeah, that's human exceptionalism, and human exceptionalism is both about our value and our duties, because we're the only species that has duties. I agree with that entirely. Well, maybe some dogs who are cheap. I mean, they always talk about, uh, well, both horses and dogs. I've heard people who are avid horsewomen say that horses have a sense of duty. They, They want to respond properly to commands. Maybe that's true. But it's certainly not a human sense of duty. Of it's certainly not a moral issue for the horses no, if they not. do. No. See, animals, as I look at it, are amoral. I mean, I've got a beautiful dog who I love, but he's not making moral decisions when he wants to please me. He's saying, I love 
he loves me and he wants to please me or he doesn't want to displease me. I think that's absolutely right. Nobody who's been around animals ever could come to the contrary conclusion. Um, one last question for you, and this is something that I've been really fretting about. And I, I, when I got, when you agreed to be interviewed, I wanted to ask you this. I think a real problem in the West today is that people feel instead of think. For example, someone might say, I feel that Donald Trump is XYZ instead of, I think that Donald Trump is XYZ. Those aren't synonyms. Thinking is, is distinctly human. Feeling is not distinctly human. And feeling is transitory. What I think, if, I, if what is right is what I feel today, well, tomorrow I might feel differently. And that, that kind of does away with our ability to actually rationally look at life and apply principles if everything is about how we feel. Or do you think I'm overreacting to that and, and it's just a, a speech idiom? No, I don't think you're overreacting. I think a, a great many people have noticed the intrusion into a contemporary life of declarations of feeling. Um, it's paralleled by the, the phrase you see over and over again on on various sites, as a black woman, as a transgendered man, as a Latino, as a Swiss Chinese lesbian, I feel. Yeah. And and the distinction, I think, is pertinent. Uh, what one feels and what one thinks and how one judges are three di quite different things. Feelings, um, are, feelings, it seems to me, are not subject to debate. I mean, I feel what I feel. When my mother was very elderly and, and she had... Um, uh, Alzheimer's, I, I would tell her something and, and I could tell when she, she didn't feel it was true, even though it was rationally because she jut her jaw out because she felt something. And that was a product of her illness. But, but I think as a society, we have a lot of people who reject rational discourse and thought based on their emotional need of the moment. I think that's true. Now take the next step. If you did, if you dare, who are those people? You tell Probably me. The most, the most broad classification of human beings. Where do you find the provenance of declarations of feeling to be paramount? I'll let you, you tell me the answer to that. I, I'm not going to, I, I know where my, my bread is buttered. I'm not about to say it. <laughs> but we both know. This, this is the prerogative, basically, of women. It's the feminization of modern life. Women typically, traditionally, have argued on the basis of, well, I just feel that way. And there's very little anyone can do about it. But it is definitely a sex-linked characteristic. Yeah, and I think, and of course, obviously, that doesn't mean women can't think. Uh, no, no, <laughs> yeah. no, not at all. Yeah. It does point to an important fact that we do live as biological agents in a seriously divided environment in which there are two sexes with very different agendas, very different attitudes, very different programs, very different ways of proceeding in the world. It's insanity to reject that. And that yet that is being rejected uh, left and right on, in Western society. It is. That's part of secular culture. I think it's almost inevitable. Everything sacred is defiled, and everything holy is profane, as Marx said. Um, and I think it will be a long time bet before the pendulum swings back. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's going to, and it's lead, it is leading actually 
continually to persecution and at least um, uh, social martyrdom, if not blood martyrdom, that people are losing their livelihoods, they're losing their friends, they're losing their opportunities. Well, I think the loss of friends can be supported with more equanimity than the loss of one's livelihood. Um, but I think basically you are right. There is um, an active attempt on the part of a tiny minority, ideological minority, not only to control the agenda of intellectual life, but to make an attempt to control reality itself. Yeah. And that's one of the miserable consequences of the 20th century. We no longer are as sure as we once were that reality cannot be controlled in this way. And and that does away with humility, and uh, that that's always a, a problem. Not well, mine. My humility is intact. Your, your humility will always be the best there is, right? Yeah. If you were to remedy one aspect of contemporary culture, what would it be? Real quick. Yeah, that's a tough question. I would invest far more money than is presently being invested in male pattern baldness and its cure. <laughs> much, much more money. <laughs> well, maybe they may or invest money in, in convincing women that male pattern baldness is sexier than Tom Cruise. That's hopeless. <laughs> Trust the voice of experience. <laughs> Well, we'll tackle that the next time. What next for uh, David Berlinski? I don't know. I've been busy writing essays. Uh, I wrote one about Eric Zamora, uh, this guy here in France, and uh, I wrote one attacking Steven Pinker. I've written one about the Yale psychologist who got in so much trouble with his students. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish a fourth novel. Um, but, you know, you reach a certain age, the urgency of actually getting the thing done begins to diminish. And I've got lots of other things on a day-to-day -day basis that are commanding my attention at time. But uh, at night, when my old war wounds ache, I go back to my novel. Well, thank you very much for being on Humanize, and I hope to be able to talk to you again. Next week. I'm, I'm free. <laughs> Thanks, David. Take care, Wesley. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.